Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. This week we welcome Haley Perbrick onto the show. Haley is fifth generation uh, at Tabuk Winery and in uh, one of the one of the oldest wineries in in Victoria, established in eighteen sixty. So we we cover a bit of that territory. She ended up uh, working in that winery for ten years, changing its environmental policy and ending up. Uh, with with it being carbon zero, she's passionate about land and 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 the environment in general. So we talk a lot about that. We also talk about a range of things like governance and and I guess her journey through through going away to to work and then ending up working back in the family business and then moving to a governance role in that business and starting her own work, which is focused around helping farmers tell their story and helping them put measurements around around their their environmental stories so that so that they can make the most of opportunities that are going to come out of the whole movement towards a, a carbon neutrality. Uh, we have a good chat around around that and, and an open and honest chat around that some people obviously see that as a really a big thorn in the side of agriculture and other people are embracing it and we we talk about those things. Um, yeah, Haley's got a great great depth of experience she's been a recipient of the melbourne food and wine legends award in 2022 she's she's done a range of range of things so it's a, a really interesting chat she's very passionate about rebuilding small towns through through entrepreneurship and uh yeah a really really interesting person to to chat with maybe a little bit different than our normal normal ones uh before we get underway with that just wanted to i guess make people aware of of one thing that's going on one of the one i guess one of the of most of our existence is, is weather forecasting. Uh, we've seen in recent weeks, uh, in what's meant to be an El Nino year, a lot of a lot of rainfall around the place, which has caused uh, havoc for those trying to harvest and, and elation for those that are trying to grow grass. And and I guess yeah, um, that does remind us that if we had good weather predictions, we wouldn't be in this situation. Or the rain will have still turned up, but we would have been better at predicting uh, when it turned up. Uh, interestingly, Google DeepMind, which is a sort of research department of of Google, uh, of are using machine learning to and have turned that, I guess that focus towards uh, weather prediction. And so we've been playing with that that model that um, is is predicting that weather. So on on our on the hub, we we post those those videos most days. We'll put up whatever what's what it's predicting. So it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. But I think as we've talked about various times it'd be awesome to have better weather prediction models so i think i'm pretty excited by the power of machine learning and and the power of google coming together to predict the weather so that's something that might that might interest you uh 
the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecast is, is actually is actually using that model, which is where I've been accessing it. But uh, yeah, get in touch if you want to know more about that or jump onto the hub. Anyway, we better get on with the show. Uh, this week, we've got Hayley Perbrick. Welcome along. Hello. Great to have you on. Uh, we first met in, in Christchurch not that long ago. So yeah, when we we're having a chat about a mutual client, I thought it'd be good to get you on here and, and have a have a chat about what you do these days. But also, I think it'd be nice to start, I guess, with your history, being fifth generation winemaker or wine winemaking family. Um, yeah, the, the Tabilk Winery is, is a bit of an institution in Victoria, one of the oldest wineries there. So it'd be cool to sort of talk about how you took it from from somewhere that's very strong in history to somewhere very forward focused and looking into into net zero and and how you've how that transition's gone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I guess um, what I would say is I have a passion for nature and the environment. So uh, before I got to Tabilk, I was pretty connected to land and country. I went off to university before I went home and studied agriculture at Melbourne Uni. And I think while I was there, I was surprised by how little we learnt about the environment. We learnt a lot about animals. We learnt a lot about um, animal physiology and biology. We learnt a lot about broadacre cropping and, um, I guess, farming systems. But we really didn't touch on how that ecosystem interacted with the natural environment. And so... I mean, that was over 10 years ago and I really wanted to look into natural resource management, but there was really not a lot around. If you wanted to do that, you had to go into um, probably a government-type role where they might be working with um, water irrigation. There really wasn't a lot of environmental sustainability, natural resource management positions and opportunities out there. So that is what led me back to the family business. I did a pretty short stint with uh, a company called Ernst & Young um, in their research and development corporate tax area for a couple of years, (laughs) which um, I did try while I was there. They were on the forefront of emissions um, carbon accounting and they were setting up an office in Brisbane and I attempted to go there, but uh, in the end I didn't pursue it because I wasn't convinced they would pay me enough for my journey. So it took me back to the family business and um, that's where it, where it really all started for me in terms of what I could do there. I actually didn't go back into an environmental role. I went into a tourism role because uh, like with most businesses, Tabilk really also didn't have a focus on uh, climate, environment, outside of vineyard management um, and the vineyard management side really wasn't where I was interested. So it was a bit of an evolving process. It took me about one year from the time I got back to the business to grow my own role, which really focused on um, climate and environmental sustainability as separate to the day-to-day management of the vineyards and the vineyard health. So that's where it all started and uh, it kind of grew from there. Yeah, excellent. So I guess... Yeah, one of you, I mean, linked to your passion around land care and and sustainability is is you're in a relatively small town in in or near Dunedin, in in New South Wales, and and from what I've read, you're pretty passionate about the sort of declining regional town in Australia, I guess, and and ways to bring business back into into those regional areas 
and, and the positives that can bring for, for all involved. Yeah, I think what I learned from Tabilk, so I worked at Tabilk uh, doing our, we had a net zero strategy, so to become emissions neutral naturally through our own reveg, uh, took about 10 years for us to achieve that goal. And I think one of the things that I learned while I was working at Tabilk, which is in a very small community, 2,000 people, where uh, this would not be uncommon for a lot of sort of mid-size uh, agricultural businesses, is we employed pretty much uh, 80% of the community had a tie back to our business. And I, I really noticed that um, if the people weren't skilled up and in the right mindset for what I was trying to achieve, which was really environmental change, so trying to change our business practice to see the environment as being an important driver for decision-making as equal to profitability. If I didn't have the people on board, then there was nothing. And um, as I started to look around, I really noticed that the local community was really struggling to engage, um, I think, mainly young people, but the whole community and the value of education. And I guess that really impacted what we could personally achieve within our own business and what I could do. So that really put me on that path of how do I actually advocate for rural and regional Australia to make sure that we're actually growing people where they're planted rather than sending them away to be educated and then trying to attract them back to a community that they might have outgrown in terms of their own mindset. So hmm, it was it's interesting. I still find it a very interesting uh, area. I live in a small community still, a little bit bigger than the Gamby up in Deniliquin in southern New South Wales. But even though it's that little bit bigger, it still struggles with the same issues. Yeah, and I think, yeah, obviously, well, I don't know, obviously, but I left a community of a small community as well. And I don't, I can't think of anyone in my particular class that stayed in within, oh, I was a couple maybe, but yeah, very few actually stayed around to, to take over family farms and the like. And so, yeah, there is that decline. And as we see, I guess, land use change and all the necessary efficiencies of scale and ag, it means there's less, less families doing bigger. And bigger areas and, and uh, yeah, certainly puts a lot of pressure on on resources across. And so, yeah, there's – and yet we've got our cities full of people and using up mostly pretty handy soil because they're on – they were built they were built wherever it was close to water and, and uh, yeah, it always seems like a bit of a tragedy to see great farming land going to houses when there's, yeah, when there's plenty of other opportunities. But anyway, we won't get onto that too much. But um, I think I read somewhere that you told your grandfather when you were five that, that – women can be winemakers too or, or something to that effect. And I guess you've obviously been in and out of the business and now back in a directorship role. How's how's that pathway been, I guess, in terms of has it been hard to be go from being boots on the ground to, to heading back into just a more of a governance role? Has that, that been challenging or has that sort of been by your design? Uh, it has been or it's been by my design but it's also been challenging. Um, so... I, at, at the moment, our family business is going through a huge transition and I would say this is probably happens to people every day. But um, So my father who was managing the business, he was leading it for 45 years, grew it from a 200-person business to um, what we now call the Tabilt Group. So we're one of the largest wine groups in Australia now. So it, it has changed significantly in between 
fourth generation to my generation, which is the fifth. Um, and it's been a really interesting process observing a transition as a fifth generation family member who the dynamics or I guess the opportunities to step into a leadership role and run the business looks very different to what it did in my father's generation and even generations before that. So it has been by design in the sense that I recognise that during this transition for me to have the greatest influence being a director is uh, a much more attractive position to be in. I actually started my directorship position while I was still working in the business, so in the day-to-day, which was really good, but you could imagine that it would have its inherent frustrations when uh, you're kind of jammed in either side. So so you might be sitting under a new CEO, but you're also a director on the board. So you've got this inherent friction point. Um, so it certainly has been much better for me to not have as much insight into the day-to-day to be able to let go and actually evolve our strategic direction and help other members in my generation actually skill up and become interested in the business. So it has been really challenging, but it's um, also been, I think, very rewarding. It has its moments, just a constant evolution of um, being aware of what's happening with other members of the family and, and trying to help us all actually move from a fourth generation business into a fifth generation business yeah and i think people often maybe underestimate the difference between sort of being in management versus being in governance and and that they're not kind of an extension of the same thing they're quite different things and and yeah it would have been very tough if you were sitting under a ceo and and above a ceo as a director that'd be a very interesting place to be the um (laughs) but um but i think yeah i guess in ag businesses obviously small ones it's don't often have a governance structure but i think one of the things we see is those is the need in sort of medium-sized businesses to get some sort of governance in place so there is some accountability beyond yeah, who left the gate open or who who didn't graze the header or whatever there's um to the higher level what are we doing about growth what are we doing about sustainability what are we doing about these these bigger ticket items that that really need to be, yeah, quite a different discussion. But yeah, it would have been an interesting, yeah, interesting transition. Very interesting. Yeah, I wear also. I guess my husband's a farmer, so we've also we own um, did own three properties until recently. We've just sold two, and that was uh, through a family succession plan. And I think what's interesting. So that's probably more a small family business context. And so we always talk about in the from a small family business around being really clear around what hat you're putting on when you're having a conversation. So we should call them, you've probably heard of this concept, it's like the blue hat, the red hat, the green hat. Yeah. And yeah. One, one's your manager hat, one's your strategic hat, you know, one's your family hat and just being really clear before you engage in a conversation which hat you're wearing and make that statement before you have a conversation. I mean, I even find that even though we're a mid-sized business, it's really it has been really important for me even just in a single role as a director to say I'm talking now as a director I'm not talking as a family member just to get everybody to shift into a different mindset in the conversation um, it's very helpful yeah yeah indeed if we shift gears a bit and move to what you do these days so you're you run your own consultancy 
and I'll let you let your words describe exactly what you do, rather than me make a mess of it. But um, but that's how how we met, and um, yeah, obviously that passion for that combined knowledge and passion is is now you're now directing that towards helping helping others as well. Yeah, I so I would the way I describe myself is that I advocate for sustainable business practice and investment in social license. So the reason I keep it really broad is because um, what I notice out there in the world is um, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of noise around what does it actually mean to be a sustainable business? How can we marry sustainability with profit? Where do we actually fit in the context of what's happening? Um and I think it's really challenging for businesses at the moment because a lot of the narrative around sustainability, climate, emissions, whichever way you want to take it from, ethical practice, is uh, being taken over by the sort of branding and marketing of the world. So the big brand owners and the big market marketing conglomerates who um, don't usually own their supply chain but have a very big influence on the amount of compliance and or like direction that their supply chain must go in. So I think that makes it really difficult for business. So I guess I would just say my consultancy, what I do is I help people understand where they are within that context and then um, help them if they need to, they don't always need to, adapt their practice so that they can feel more confident that they are actually heading heading down this path or the path that they actually want to go down so a lot of the time I don't think people really know which which lane they're going down and uh, they come to a crossroads and they're not sure whether they should hop off their current lane and go down a different one or whether they should keep going so I, I just help them identify what crossroads they're actually at and and which road they could potentially go down yeah it'd be a fascinating role and I'm sure you get into some pretty interesting conversations as and that's a in any sort of consulting type role like ours included it is an absolute privilege to be working closely with a range of different families and operations to at a kind of strategic level not not just um not just day-to-day so yeah it'd be very interesting i guess while we can kind of think of the big evil companies which are driving their mandates but i guess without that happening none of this would be going anywhere like essentially little sole voices in different parts of Australia have had, like that's been around for a long time, but it really wasn't until recently when, well, relatively recently until the until it started to hit home when, and the big the big corporates start talking about it and start talking and moving with their with their checkbooks or, or, or funds transfer. Um, and that sort of has, I guess, brought this into a little bit more or closer to each of us and therefore clearer for each of us that we need to act. Is that... Is that a fair statement or am I, am I in dreamland? Yeah, I, I think it's a fair statement. Um, I think also though, just from my experience, that a, lot of, a lot of businesses, particularly small family businesses, are already doing great work when it comes to environmental sustainability and I guess ethical practice, which are the two sort of areas that I think are mainly being driven is that your product – can no longer do the talking. You need to be able to find some qualitative and quantitative data to prove that you're also caring for the environment and you're also um, caring for your animals and your people. I think that's the big shift is 
a lot of data is required to be able to tell your story and validate your story and that's something really new and I think that's could be quite daunting particularly for a small business or even a medium-sized business who um, might have the data but it's not organized in a way where they can gather it quickly and bring it together to be able to provide that evidence back to someone in their supply chain so I think it's really good um, but I also think it's got some real challenges behind it that, and technology could be a real enabler if we can get that right. A quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at NextGen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock, and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextinagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. Yeah, and one of the things, I guess, in this whole, in your whole sphere would be that kind of becomes their problem almost. No one knows who they are, but but it's always somebody else. Like, it's not, we're doing a great job, but, but they aren't or they aren't rewarding it or whatever. And we sort of get into that sort of game and, I guess, how do you, what do you see the future playing out like in terms of like any sort of assurance scheme is only, well, I think is only strong as the weakest link. So it only takes one one enterprise somewhere that you're aligned with by, by supplying the same company or whatever. If they have an animal welfare disaster or an environmental disaster or whatever, then, then in my mind, maybe simplistically, the whole ship goes down with, with that disaster. Is How do you see it playing out as in individual farms, how they can act to, or groups of farms can act to, I guess, differentiate themselves a bit to, so that they're not maybe at, have the same risk. Yeah, I guess I, so for me, working in agriculture, I think one thing that we don't do particularly well is tell stories. And I've certainly learned from working with different uh, graziers and growers that they have a great story to tell but they're just not telling it. They're not sure how to organise their story to create impact. And I think that's actually really important. Um, Having a good standard to apply to make sure that everybody who's telling a story is applying a certain standard that can support that story, Um, I think that's really important as well. And there's plenty of different standards out there that people can apply depending on their story and the strength of their story. Um, so I feel like things can always go wrong, but the challenge the agricultural industry has globally is that because we don't share a positive story before things go wrong, when it goes wrong, it just adds to the negativity that I think a lot of, a lot of noise gets pointed at agriculture in a negative way, where if we could elevate the starting position to be one of positivity, when you have a mistake happen, which inevitably things go wrong not every producer is a great producer or you know things just happen that are out of your control or gets missed like that's part of being in business there's risk involved Uh, but I think it really hurts the ag industry because we we don't market ourselves as strongly as I think we probably could yeah that's interesting I guess if you sort of contrast to bilk versus a a family farm both are probably fourth fifth generation both have heritage and and founders who have done amazing things and like all very similar, but one's got some nice great 
some vineyards and some buildings and stuff to sh- that are sort of obviously demonstrable and therefore have a like a story even if you don't choose to tell it it's there to be told or there to see whereas in a farming context the same stories often exist in a different scale different level but they're still there and can still still add inherent value to that business if told well yeah i think that was one thing so when there was a, going to possibly be an emissions trading scheme in australia or back in 2000 and 10, I think it may have been. So it was a while ago now and it was eventually canned and didn't go ahead. Um, I think the one thing that I noticed back then as someone who was interested in the environment is that carbon calculating or accounting for me was all I could think was, oh, this is just another way for me to see if I'm moving in the right direction. So we were already doing water monitoring. We were already doing biodiversity monitoring. We were already doing soil testing. And all of those data points tell you a story about the health and well-being of your ecosystem. And the one thing that we were missing was, well, how do we know whether our, we're being efficient and whether we're being wasteful? And that's something that I think emissions data does really well. And if we could all sort of harness that data to support the story, I think we'd find that a lot of growers are doing great work. Uh, But you do need that data to be able to tell a consumer or even tell yourself that what I'm doing is actually working. If you can see it and feel it and also put a number on it, then it's got greater impact and it can really create a lot of change, which I know can be very challenging for a small business, but I think this is where industry can be really powerful if you're in a good industry and also when you work together with a group of other growers who are all like-minded and want to achieve a similar outcome. Yeah, and you, I mean, in your role, I'm sure you've encountered it all, but obviously we're around the place. We hear the everything from the climate change denying to that it's, yeah, look, there's a fair bit of angst in this area and and people who kind of just see it as another layer of red tape and paperwork that sort of yeah it's just making life harder and should be all left alone but the reality is that yeah i guess that's a that's an interesting interesting discussion that you must end up having but i guess maybe the people that come to you aren't in that mindset, they'll be they'll be quite different. But there'll be people listening to this going, "Why are we talking about carbon still? Are we yeah. we got we've got land prices to worry about." Yeah, well, I I guess um, what I notice is there's two ways you can look through the lens of uh, sustainability, and either look through it through a compliance lens, or you can look through it through a planning lens. And I think for a lot of people, it's just changing the way that they see. So. You can choose to look through a compliance lens and if you do, it will feel like a massive burden. But the thing about data is that it's powerful in terms of your decision-making and planning. So if, if people choose to look through a different lens, which is a lot of the work that I do, people might start, approach me through a compliance lens, but we always end up starting from a decision-making planning lens because at the end of the day, if you don't understand where you're going, why you're doing your work, and how that data supports your decision-making, compliance does feel very laborious. Um, I guess what I've learned working in the emissions space is that once you understand the data and what the data is trying to tell you, it can be a really powerful tool to show you whether your business is efficient um, and where the most inefficient parts of your business 
are. Um, and one other thing I would just say, which I think is really, really challenging for growers when it comes to this emissions conversation is the, I guess, the complexity of the rules at the moment where you have, you can do an organisational carbon footprint or you can do, they call it a life cycle carbon assessment, which is a, is a product uh, carbon accounting footprint. So with the organisational level footprint, you've because it's a volunteer program, you have choice. So a lot of industry groups are choosing to uh, ask their growers or promoting that they just do scope one and two, which would be uh, essentially from, I guess, the, what's on farm to the farm gate. Whereas at Tabilk, we have always been interested in doing scope three as well because we like to know what the lion looks like in the grass behind us. We don't want to be caught off guard. Um, and when we've done that, it's actually changed our impression of where our biggest emissions footprint is. And I think um, I know you talk to a lot of graziers and I think this is just a really interesting one for people to consider that um, depending how broad or how narrow your data set is, things are going to look bigger or smaller. So if you're only looking on farm, methane as an example is going to look gigantic because you've got a narrow lens and that is a big emission source through a narrow lens but if growers were to expand their lens out into scope three so to look at their upstream and downstream emissions contribution they might find that methane is not such a significant contributor or it at minimum looks smaller and it it shifts your focus um, somewhere else Anyway, it's just an interesting side of it. I think um, compliance is only scary when you don't understand what the data is trying to tell you, which I think is absolutely fair. And it, you know, it take, took me 10 years to achieve what I achieved at Tobilk and that was like a lot of intensive learning. Um, so it's not going to happen overnight for people, but it's, it's a willingness to actually want to know more, I think, which will help people's businesses in the end. Cool. So to help them along that chain, if we... Just quickly explain scope one, scope two, and scope three. So, I mean, that language gets used a lot, but um, yeah, I guess I don't know it particularly well and it would be nice just so that people are clear about those those differences because they're going to hear that from people, or, like that's the sort of the language that gets used. Yeah, so scope one, so that's direct emissions. So it's essentially any uh, activity, any emissions generated from activity which happens with is, which is within your control. So anything that happens directly in your farming operation, um, say, for example, if you're laying out fertiliser on the ground, if you are uh, using chemicals and sprays, that's all part of your scope one emissions. Diesel fuel, um, unleaded fuel use is all in your scope one. Scope two is purely electricity energy consumption so any heat energy sources so usually for a farm would be your electricity that you might be using for your pump or your farmhouse or your shed if you're shearing uh, that's all in scope two so it's indirect energy um, use and then scope three they call it upstream and downstream emissions so essentially it's what happens not on your property either coming to your property or leaving your property. So if you move your sheep to a processor, um, that transport 
emission use would be in that um, scope three for a downstream emission. Or, for example, when you're bringing something onto the farm um, like a chemical or a spray, that freight component would be captured in your downstream scope three. So that's what the, the one, two, three looks like. And often you hear a lot of people talking about scope three and um, are challenged about whether to include it or not. Um, to me, data's data. I think it's much, it's different in New Zealand because I know that you have a taxation system that's being built around emissions. So um, that is going to be really difficult. But from an Australian context, if you're just looking at purely on wanting to understand what is my complete footprint across my entire supply chain end to end, then doing your direct emissions, your electricity and your indirect emissions through scope three can be really useful information. Yeah, I guess it's relevance to your average farmer is that if even if you're not thinking about your scope three, other people are thinking about their scope three and you you are part of it and so that's why you're in the you become focused or a focus because a wool processor has to well within their scope three is what what you're up to or and so that, yeah, that's where, that's that's where right. it becomes relevant for us yeah. yeah everyone's scope three is someone else's scope one yeah. um, in yeah. australia just because you know what your data footprint looks like does not mean that you have to do anything with it it's just information to inform your decisions you would know the New Zealand market a lot better than I do. Um, I'm not sure how that taxation system works, whether it's scope one, two, or three, or how they're doing. You'd be it. you'd be surprised how little I know about the New Zealand tax <laughs> system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah living here, but I'll leave that to to the boss and to the accountant to worry about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone listening will know. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah, exactly, hundred percent. That's mm. uh, just not my strength. But yeah, yeah, excellent. So, for someone out there listening, how do they get in touch with you to to make contact and see if see if you can help them? I don't know if you are looking for more work, but even if you're not, it doesn't mean yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah. Um, they can always. I mean, if they look up Haley Perbrick, I am on LinkedIn. That's where you find me easily accessible just um shout out send me a message and um i am very responsive um outside of that um yeah that's the easiest way to get in touch with me and i'm always more than uh open to just talk to people about it i think for a lot of people it's just getting some clarity about what is their next step and um being able to have somebody to ask questions to i'm always happy to ask uh, answer questions Excellent. So if we go, we'll go high level to finish it off. What's so if we're sitting here in 2033, what are we, what is, what's the, what does our landscape look like in terms of your area of expertise and how have things changed? Oh gosh, that's such a good question because I, um, I feel less hopeful most of the time that anything's going to shift. Um, <laughs> I think I've, I've accepted that it's, that the change that we need is it really requires people to draw down on their existing business practice quite deeply and um, really change their behaviour and the way that they're thinking. I mean, if I could wish for anything, uh, it would be a really simple hope um, and that is 
just when people make a decision that they just ask themselves three questions and that is how will this impact my bottom line, how will this impact the environment and how will this impact my people and all my animals. If we could just start to slightly shift the way that we think to ask ourselves a few more questions as we're making decisions, I think uh, that's really going to help. Um, so that's about as hopeful as I am that we can change. <laughs> but I'd love to say I think things are going to change quite rapidly, but I really think this is um, you know, many decades of practice that we yeah need to turn around. So. I'm hopeful that people can do it at some point. I'm just not sure if it's going to be uh, in my generation. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was a good answer. And there are definitely three good questions to ask because it is easy to kind of almost purposely turn a blind eye to one of those three or or even two of those three if you get really carried away with economics. or it's, mm-hmm. um, And so, yeah, important. And, that, and I think, as you say, like bringing – Awareness is obviously the first step and just being aware that and you can still make the same decision and do the same thing, but if you're aware that that does have an impact, at least I think I think our minds start to change your behaviour once you're aware of something and, and uh, I'm ever ever in awe of the power of the human brain to, to make change even though we don't know what's happening. Yeah, I definitely live by that innovation is not just reserved for profitability. Innovation can be very uh, attainable when it comes to sustainability and I think that agriculturalists are definitely a big part of our solution here because I think they're adaptive, they're clever, they understand the environment. So, um, yeah, I think if if everyone who owns land can do this together, then we're going to be in a good good spot. Yeah, and we will finish up, but yeah, like I've, you've never met a farmer anywhere that doesn't want to leave the place in a better, better way than they found it. So it's more helping, helping achieve that and helping have some measures around that. So it is quite a clear outcome, and that's. I mean, everyone wants that. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you come across them. That's that would be something and pretty held close to their to their heart. So so there is. There is hope, however faint that may feel sometimes in your role. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not the people that I'm working with are definitely, um, I think everyone's so keen to do the right thing and I think that's a great starting point. Um, And I think really it's just being open to what might need to change and change is really difficult. That's why I like to call it transition. It's just thinking about it more like a transition. Yeah. Where, how, where am I now? Where do I want to go? And how do I transition through that process? It doesn't have to happen tomorrow. It can be, you know, over a period of time. But I think what's important is that people recognise they need to transition, and then it's just working with people to help them get through that process um, from where they are now to where where they want to go. And I think uh, everyone's unique and. They have the right to want to go wherever they want to go, and if it could just include um, a rich and abundant landscape, then then that would be lovely. Excellent, Hallie. That sounds like a fantastic place to pull up. But uh, yeah, very much appreciate your time. You're doing great work there. Obviously, ten years changing to build, but now working with other businesses to do the same. And um, yeah, appreciate your time, and look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply of professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. 
they understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.